things I wanted to mention to you, talk to you about before we jump into our sermon here this morning. And the first thing is, I wanted to speak a little bit more about this parenting class that we're going to be doing. Um, it's going to be during the Sunday school hour, and it's going to start right after Easter Sunday. And um, it's going to be taught by someone named Brett Ullman, who you saw on the trailer there. Brett Ullman has been a speaker for a long time, and, and I actually was introduced to him when I was a youth pastor, and we go to some of these youth conventions, and he would speak to teens. And I've always appreciated for a long time his ability to communicate about really important topics. And as his uh, career as a Christian speaker has continued, he's now broadened some of his topics, one of which is this idea of parenting. Um, and so I'm really glad I'm going to be able to facilitate this class, and we'll be learning from him on a video series. And I really want to just make sure that all of you who are parents and of a variety of ages of kids, I think, will find some of these things very foundational and helpful. And even if you are someone who is looking forward to being a parent in the future, uh, this could be a great place to come and to try to get some of this philosophy of parenting as well. So just encourage you to be a part of that class. And, and as well, it is something that's available on Right Now Media. So as we continue this course, and it's going to be seven weeks in total, if you miss a week because you were teaching Sunday school class or you weren't able to make a Sunday morning, uh, this is a resource that's available for all of us. And so you can catch up and watch one of these studies on the week that you miss and then come back the week after and be right where everybody else is. So I don't want anyone to be discouraged about some of the obstacles that might be in the way of, of taking this class. And in addition to that, if you have someone in your life who you think would really benefit from something like this, especially if they may not be a church person, you can invite them to come and take in this class as well. And you can say, hey, if you come and want to take this parenting class, there's free childcare because it's during the Sunday school hour. It's one of the reasons why we chose this time to do a class like that. So please consider this. If you have any questions about that logistically or other or, or content-wise, you can talk to me. I'm looking forward to be able, being able to walk through this and learn with you because Karen and I are keenly aware of how much we still are learning as parents. That's that. The second thing I wanted to mention to you is that we have been working, we being a committee of, of four churches, have been working together to... Uh, to get some Afghan refugee families here to Canada. And this idea started with us part participating just with the e, um, EFC church in town. It's now this consortium of four churches, and we are planning on and have plans in motion to bring three families over together. And the first family, uh, we're going to show a picture here. Um, I can't share names yet, and we're not going to show this picture on our live stream because things are yet to be finalized. But we are at the 11th hour with this family, meaning it could be in the next month or two that they're actually able to come to Canada. And then we have a second family that's in the five to six month range, and then a third family that's going to be uh, over a year down the road. We're going to be doing this in stages, and we're really excited about that. Why am I sharing this information? Well, uh, at our last congregational meeting, we set aside a chunk of money, and we are going to be hopefully using that money in the near future towards the project that we talked about. Uh, but more importantly than that, we are getting very close to where this planning stage is now going to morph into the doing stage. And so very likely in the next month or two, you're going to see me back up here uh, asking for some very real tangible help to come alongside this family and help them get settled. And so I just wanted to update you where we are in this process and maybe uh, open you to this idea already of thinking of how you might be willing to be involved as we really want to host these families and integrate them here into our community. So it's exciting. And it's wonderful to just think of how much we're able to do as a group of four churches together. And we're going to continue to need your generous support as we look at um, bringing these families over. Awesome. Are we all good? Those things are clear as mud? 
Ready for a sermon? It's our last one in our sermon series, Wise, uh, or, or sorry, Word to the Wise. We've been in it so long, I've forgotten what we called it. Word to the Wise. It's been our sermon series in Proverbs, and that also means it's the last time for us to play a round of wise and otherwise, taking a look at some sayings, different cultures in the past, seeing if they're wise or maybe more than a little bit funny. For example, there's an old Greek saying, he who eats flaxseed eats his own shirt. So apparently not a fan of flax in Greece there. Same way I feel about gluten-free bread. But that's neither here nor there. There's an old Russian saying, curly hair, curly thoughts. <laughs> and at first I was like, that's insane. And I thought, you know what, that makes a certain amount of sense. I don't know how to describe it. Maybe there's some wisdom there. There's an old Irish saying, everyone is affable until a cow gets in the garden. And that's, uh, that's enough to ruin anyone's day at that point. There's an old Chinese saying, a hasty man drinks his tea with a fork, which is something you could try to do after church if you wanted to. And last, the last one we're going to go over is an old Serbian saying, he who goes round the village long enough will get either a dinner or a dog bite. It was a bit hit and miss in those Serbian villages back in the day. You were hungry, but how hungry were you? Worth the risk, in my opinion. But what is the final thought from Proverbs? Well, the topic that we're going to go over today, the last one in the series, is a simple idea to understand, but an incredibly difficult idea to live out. We're going to talk about humility. And the concept of humility is clear. It is just simply to think of other people as more important than yourself. That's it. In a nutshell, you really don't need to have an extensive biblical knowledge. You really don't need to listen to the rest of this sermon to understand the idea of humility. It's easy to understand. But the practice of humility, to live like other people are more important than you, well, now that's where the rubber hits the road. This is where we see the challenge in being people that live humbly. Now, Proverbs has a fairly unique perspective on humility that I think will help us be mindful, not only to remind us of this lesson or this idea, but to help us live it out. And again, I hope you've enjoyed our time in Proverbs because what we've seen is that the wisdom given from God to us is practical. It's relevant. It matters. It impacts what we do the minute we walk out these doors. And humility is the exact same way. The real challenge is going out and living this truth of being wise in this way. I'd invite you now to take out your Bibles if you have them with you. And we're going we're gonna to camp out a bit in Proverbs 29, verse 23. There are so many different Proverbs that talk about pride and humility. But this one in particular, I think, captures a lot of the heart of the book for this topic. Proverbs 29, verse 23. I'll read it for you. You can, you can stay camped out here, and it will also be on the screen behind me. It says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Let me read it one more time. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. We have lots to learn from this very short proverb. And before we do, I just invite you to pray with me one more time. We want to ask God's blessing on our, our learning time together. 
Father God, as we have already done, we, we've been able to meet together freely. We've been able to sing uh, truths about you. We've been able to share what's on our hearts. And God's still just keenly aware that so many of us in our, our church family are going through a difficult time of grief and loss and, and walking beside others who are going through that time. And God, I pray that you would truly, uh, profoundly meet us here. That your spirit would, would be among us, bringing us together, giving us your comfort, your peace, and also guiding us into your truth. And as we look at a topic that, again, is so easy to understand and hard to do, that your spirit would be not only bringing us to this truth, but allowing us to, to d- have it dig down deep into who we are so that it can't help but impact the way that we live. God, this is your work. We pray that you would do it among us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So what has Proverbs told us here in 29.23 that is so unique or important about this relationship between pride and humility? Well, one of the things that's happening is there is a little bit of wordplay going on in Proverbs because the Hebrew word for pride is derived from a word meaning high. So if we know that, if we know that, 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 that pride is really about thinking too highly of ourselves or elevating ourselves, then we see this word play immediately. One's pride, one's desire to elevate oneself will bring him low. Or another way to put it, what goes up must come down. This is the word play, this is the picture that we're given to help us understand what pride looks like and what humility looks like in comparison. Because in pride, we do seek to elevate ourselves. We put ourselves over others, and if we live in pride, we will look down on them. We will look down on the little people. Kind of like when Karen and I went to Chicago seven years ago, we were able to go up to the Sears Tower, and they had at the, at the very top of the Sears Tower this little plexiglass, blue, plexiglass, wow, that's hard to say, booth. And you could step out, over the street below. And it was terrifying. (laughs) Everybody else looks so tiny from that height, right? And this is what pride does to us, not literally, but figuratively, where we seek to elevate ourselves so others are little in comparison. It also reminds me of one of my favorite movie quotes comes from A Bug's Life, which I know is dating myself, but yes, I've had a few birthdays A Bug's Life, an animated movie from 1998, had this character whose name was Heimlich. He was a a caterpillar, and he was German, and he wanted nothing more than to transform into a beautiful butterfly. And so at the very end of the movie, he gets these tiny wings that are not nearly enough to actually let him fly. And so the ants help him fly. He's like, look at me, I'm flying. And he looks at the ants, he says, you all look like little ants from up here. This is my favorite movie quote. I just want to, I want to just find a way to say that in, in everyday conversation, but it's few and far. But you all look like little ants from up here. So maybe, maybe now in the sermon, I could kind of finagle it in there. This is what pride does to us. We elevate ourselves and think of others less, as beneath us, as little. In fact, to elevate ourselves, it often comes at the expense of pushing other people down. We push others down in order to feel or think better about us. Now, this is a lesson we all find out very soon in the schoolyard. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but my, my middle child, Malachi, he's a little small for his age, a little bit short. And uh, knowing the, the genetic pool that he has to work with, that's not going to change for him anytime ever. And so I just asked him the other day, I said, Malachi, does anyone ever make fun of you for how you're a bit short for your age? He says, yeah, some people do. I was like, oh, okay. 
Names and addresses, please. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. I said, do you know why? Do you know why kids choose to do that? He's like, no, I don't really know. I said, it often comes because they feel insecure about themselves. They want to feel better. They want to feel more confident. And, and one of the ways that kids, as they try to sort this out, as they're trying to mature, one of the easy ways, natural ways to do it is to lash out at others. You put, you put them down, and then it can make you feel better about yourself. That's what's going on. So don't worry about it. Encourage them. Lift them up. And while we might learn this lesson of how others or even we can be guilty of, of pushing others down to think better of ourselves, while we learn that early in life, it's not at all limited to the schoolyard. This stuff happens so often in friend groups and families and workplaces. And we too can be caught up in this idea of pride and thinking highly of ourselves. Thinking highly of ourselves. So we need to avoid this. Do not push others down to puff or lift yourself up. But some of the real danger with pride is not just these consequences that it has in our relationship with others as we belittle them, but it also has an incredible danger to the relationship that we have with God. Because as we continue to elevate ourselves higher and higher and higher, it puts us in open defiance of God's place in, in our lives. It seeks to usurp God's throne. When we take pride to its natural end, then we are first. We are most important. We are on the throne of our life. The truth is, pride is the root of the very original sin. And we can go back and read from Genesis 3 in this account that Adam and Eve were tempted by the deception of the serpent that if they disobeyed God and ate of the knowledge of the, the fruit of the, sorry, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was tempting about that? The temptation from the serpent was that they would be like God. That was the temptation. That was what was motivating enough for them to disobey God. They wanted to be like him. The root of that first sin was pride. And ever since this moment, our pride as humankind has sought autonomy from God. We don't need him. We can do it on our own. We can be independent. We can chase our own dreams. It didn't take long for this to, to show itself in human history either. We just go to Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel. And this is what their conversation was like in Genesis 11 verse 4. This group of people, they said to each other, come. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Why? And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so now this gathered group of people is wanting to do things without God. We can achieve this. We can build a tower to the heavens. We can make a name for ourselves. This is pride at work. We can do it on our own. Now, these stories come from thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. But the more things have changed, the more they've stayed the same. And as our world departs more and more readily from the truth of Scripture and from these moral tenets of Christianity that were, that were outlined by God himself, we find ourselves in a world that is much more defined and driven by secular humanism. What do I mean? Secular means without religion, without God. Humanism, meaning that we can accomplish everything if we just put our minds to it and work together. This is what the world outside of Christ is living for. 
what they are teaching, what we are surrounded by. But the uncomfortable truth is that secular humanism is peddling the same goods using different language. The temptation in the garden, you can be like God. What is the world teaching today? You set the rules for right and wrong. You can define that knowledge of good and evil. You can pursue your own happiness. You can be like God. The Tower of Babel was was a group of people who wanted to make a name for themselves. What does the world teach? Together, we can accomplish anything through technological and scientific and moral advances. We will finally unlock full human potential. We can make a name for ourselves. It's the same root problem of pride that seeks to knock God off his throne and put us in his place, all of which comes with a significant warning. What does it say? It says one's pride will bring him low. What goes up must come down and be brought down hard. One thinks of Icarus flying too close to the sun, and he got so high that it was the very source of his fall. When I think of this wordplay between up and down, I think of a roller coaster. And I love roller coasters. When, when I lived in Dallas, we had season passes to Six Flags. And one of my favorite roller coasters was the Texas Giant, an old classic wooden roller coaster. And at the very beginning, they just pull you up on that cart, on that, on that chain. Click, 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 click. And you go up to the very top, and then you pause until that momentum brings you down. And at that very top, we have a few minutes to think about this, or a few seconds, there was a sign held by the cartoon character Wiley Coyote that said, wait, let's discuss this. (laughs) But of course, at that moment, it was too late, and you went over the precipice, and then you plummeted down to the bottom. And this is what the relationship is. The warning is that as our pride kind of pushes us forward and elevates us as we think of others less and push them down, that eventually... When we get to the top, we will experience that fall. And the bottom is not so much humility as could be humiliation. A pattern that we've acknowledged here in in Proverbs is that often these sayings are not some sort of supernatural promise that that God's going to go and do something that's that's out of the ordinary. So much of of these Proverbs is, is just a reminder that if we live a certain way, these will be the natural outcomes of either living wisely or living foolishly. And of course, if you live your life in such a way that that seeks to elevate yourself over others, if your focus is on pushing people down, well, guess what? That's not a very good way to make friends. They're not going to like you very much. It's a very natural outcome that you will have lived in such a way to create enemies that will put a target on your back, and there will be people that will seek to knock you off that pedestal, that will seek to drag you down, that will seek to get even. That's another part of human nature. And even if others are not responsible for your fall from grace, there will be very little mercy shown when somebody who is full of pride falls to the bottom. Over the past few years, I've gotten into watching Formula One racing. Uh, It's a lot of fun. The cars go really fast. And sometimes there's some spectacular crashes as well. I don't cheer for them, but I definitely don't mind seeing them, as long as everyone's okay. But over the last number of years, in fact, uh, last year was the first time in eight years that a team other than Mercedes won the world championship. For eight years, Mercedes won. And so when they didn't win, there was a lot of people who loved to see that, that, that team get knocked from their pedestal. 
So not only do I enjoy watching Formula One, though, there's a, a documentary on Netflix about it, and you get to see all the behind the scenes, and there was these teams that were just so longing to see that, that team knock down a peg. And that's what happens if you live with pride. People will be interested in seeing you brought down low. And as much as it is a natural outcome, there still is this warning of an act of God to appropriately put you in your place. It's a warning that there are severe consequences in your life when we try to take God off his throne. Because what happened in those other instances of pride? Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. They were removed from God's presence and they had to experience death. The nations at Babel were confused in their language and they were scattered across the world. The very thing that they were trying to avoid happening in their pride was now the outcome and the consequence of that sin. And this world around us that's defined by secular humanism is also constantly reminded of limitations. So I'd ask you this, especially if you're skeptical, especially if you're wondering about faith, especially if you're wondering, like, well, is it really, does it really make sense to have this submission or surrender to God? Can we not do things as humankind? My question is this, can we really be like God? Do we really think that's possible? Can we really truly accomplish everything or anything? Are we really in control? Because if there's one lesson that we've learned in the past four years, is that it takes one microscopic virus to prove to the entire world that we're not in control, that we can't do everything, that we don't always make the right decisions, that we are not on the throne. The secular humanism thing does not add up. It's full of holes. It always has has been, and it still is today. So we've been warned against pride. What goes up must come down. But this proverb is another example of antithetic parallelism. I have to say that one more time before we're done. This opposite idea sitting right beside each other in contrast. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. What goes up must be brought down, but what bows down will be lifted up. Humility is about thinking of others more important than yourself. So you're not thinking too highly. You're not becoming self-centered. You're spending your time and your energy serving those around you. It's the exact opposite of pride, and this is where our energy and our attention ought to go. So as much as we heed the warnings against pride, we need to live striving for humility, and then we will avoid pride by itself. Now, the New Testament has a lot more to say about humility, probably no verse more well-known than Philippians 2.3 which puts it very well. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, the other words for pride, but in humility, being lowly in spirit, count others more significant than yourselves. We're right back to where we began. This is the definition of humility. It's easy to understand. You got it? Think of others as more important than yourselves. But how do we live this out? There's a few small but important reminders that I've had over this past week. Um, we have our friend Diana visiting here uh, from Stonewall, and she wanted to, to uh, treat our kids to a, um, to a dessert at Tim Hortons. And so they all wanted these mini egg dream donuts, which they make for Easter. Have you ever seen those mini egg dream donuts? They look amazing. Uh, and, and all our kids wanted one. We're having a hard time. We had to go to three different Tim Hortons to find a restaurant that actually had three of these mini donuts. We're going to the last one, 
and they all want it. And then Eli says at the back, he said, uh, you know, if, if there's only two, then my brothers can have them. I was like, that's neat. That's cool. I said, hey, I'm going to talk about humility. And he says, can you, can you make sure you mention this in your sermon? And I said, absolutely. Because <laughs> church, I owe him one because I talk about him all the time, right? This is the, this is the struggle of being a pastor's kid. But I was really impressed and encouraged. That's an act of humility. That's putting this into practice. I was also very encouraged yesterday when I woke up at the crack of dawn to go at 7 a.m. and be with many of you as we were serving at Southland. Now, we were serving, but it was, it was not all altruistic. We were doing this as a bit of a fundraiser to help Gil serve at Southland so that we could underwrite some of our costs. But it was still an act of service. We were there, and, and I talked to many of you about how it was still an act of service because Southland was saying thank you to their volunteers. So they were serving those who often serve others, and we were able to serve those who were serving those who serve. You know, you, know, you know what I'm saying? There was this whole cycle of service. And I'm like, yes, this is what the Christian life is supposed to be marked by. This is what it should be. And I was very impressed and very thankful for all of you who came out there. And then I, then I learned after the fact that Janelle Unra was there on her birthday serving other people. So congratulations to that. And happy, happy belated birthday, by the way. And now I owe you one because I know you did not want me to mention this at all. I'm gar- I guarantee. But too bad. So we, we were doing this. I see evidence of it, fruit of it. Can we continue to strive to put our energy in lifting others up and thinking highly of them, of serving them? Easy to understand, hard to live out, but I see fruit of that all around. Now, we also need to remember the impact that this has either pride or humility has in our relationship with God. So now to be in lowly in spirit, to not seek to elevate ourselves, will also then acknowledge God's rightful place in our life through true and honest worship. The exact opposite of pride, of thinking of ourselves as number one, the exact opposite of this idea is surrender. It's about acknowledgement. I mean, here's the reality. God is on the throne. He is sovereign. He is the one true living God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Can you acknowledge that in your life? He reveals what is true. He teaches what is right and wrong. And he is able to control what we cannot. God is in charge. And this idea, this word of surrender, sometimes it's it's hard because it, it sounds daunting. It sounds crazy. How can I give up control of my life to someone else? And if it sounds daunting and if it sounds crazy, here's why. Because it is. Surrender is no small thing. Never think that the call of the Christian life to give up everything to surrender to God is easy. It's nothing of the sort. But as crazy and daunting as it sounds, I believe with all my heart that it is worth it. That this King of kings and Lord of lords who seeks to be number one has designed us in such a way that he wants to be on the throne of your life. And that he will fulfill this role with love and with mercy and with grace and with power and with life. And as crazy and as daunting as it sounds to submit to God, I believe it is even more daunting and even crazier to believe that we can somehow navigate this life on our own. One of the scariest thoughts that I can have is that I am the most in control. If I am the most in control, then I don't know how I can do life 
with everything that it throws our way. Surrender is no small thing. Seeking control is that much more daunting. Submission to God and worship of Him, elevating His name, is true freedom and fulfillment. I have a short uh, um, film I want you to, to watch here from I Am Second, a gentleman by the name of Pete Briscoe that talks about this importance and this value of not being number one. I think the emptiness happens when you get to the place that you thought would make you happy and you discover it doesn't. Or the emptiness happens when you continually strive to get to that place and don't quite reach it. It's two different kinds of emptiness, but it's emptiness nevertheless. I remember in my early years as a pastor, my drive to preach the best sermon every week I possibly could, and I would have people come up to me after the sermon saying, oh, that was great, Pete. How are you going to top that next week? And I would just think, oh, no. And I would be working all week long and all day Saturday, and I'd be there late Saturday night and early Sunday morning, and, and I was just dying. It's exhausting having to succeed. And uh, what I didn't realize is, um, as that was my focus for so long and that was my drive for so long, that I, I had just worn myself out. When I was a little guy and people asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, at first, it was a fireman, um, and then it was a policeman. Um, but then around 10 or 12, my answer became very different. Every time someone asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said the same thing. I said, I want to be the best. And they would look at me and say, the best at what? And I would say, I don't care. It doesn't matter. I just want to be the best at something. <laughs> I think it came from that I liked attention and I noticed that the kids who were really good at things got more attention than the kids who were less so. And so at the core of who I was, it was really about people thinking highly of me and just feeding off that attention. There was one basketball game when I scored 52 points, and I was the best player on the court that night. And I remember going back in the locker room and people patting me on the back and getting changed and going out, and everything was still the same as it was before I scored 52 points. And I thought, dang, it isn't as good as I thought it would be. It didn't meet the need that I felt I had. And so I needed to find something that was, or someone that was. Christ is first in my life because he is magnificently first in everything. And it's simply my recognition of who he is. He is first because he's better than me at everything. Anything I can try to do, he can do it better. He's first because he passionately loves me. There's nothing I can do to make him love me more. There's nothing I can do to make him love me less. 
He loves me perfectly right now. So he is first in my life because he's passionately crazy about me, whether I'm doing well or not, whether I'm performing beautifully or not, whether I just sinned miserably or not. He's nuts about me. He's crazy about me. How can someone like that not be first? When, when they when they make you first, he made me first in his life. He went to the cross for me. He thoroughly sacrificed himself for me. He made me first. And when I come to grips with that depth of love, with his passion for me, um, it seems incongruent to allow anything else to be first. He's got to be first. I'm Pete Briscoe, and I am second. we understand the depth of Christ's love for us, how could anyone or anything else be first? And I think that puts good words to how we understand how we should be motivated by this idea of surrender and true and wise humility. So yes, what goes up must come down. Pride comes before a fall. But this idea of being lowly in spirit then, what happens? But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Really, I think, to continue this wordplay that's very intentional here, really what, what, what bows down will be lifted up. The outcome of humility is to be lifted up by God and by others. Honor or glory in your community comes from the trust that people give you because of your consistent selflessness and your focus on others. As much as there are negative consequences to pushing other people down in your pride, there are positive consequences to living a life that is focused on lifting other people's up, uh, them up. Those who help others will find support when they need it as well. Back uh, three and a half years ago, when my family and I were moving from Stonewall to Steinbeck, one of the things that blew us away, one of the very first interactions we had with you as a church, is how many people came and helped us move. It's such a big job to get everything out of that house in Stonewall, to clean that place, spick and span, and to come, and then to, to be able to set up shop here in Steinbeck. And so many of our church family were there, were helping us. And over the handful of years that I've been here since, there's been a number of you that have, have also needed to move houses. And I have been very motivated to say, hey, I want to be there for that. In the way that you've helped me, I'd love to help you. Except if you need to move a piano. That I refuse to do. You can pay someone else for that. That's fine. But I found in my own life this, this desire, this unique desire to especially help others in the way that I've been helped. And so as we focus on serving and loving and lifting up those around us, then when we find ourselves in need, we will let uh, experience other people doing the same for us. This is what it means to show honor, to receive honor in our humility. Church, do you see this impact, how this can impact a family? who all seeks to lift each other up? Do you see the, just the transformation that can happen in this church when we live this way, day in and day out? Do you, do you even think, think of all that could happen in Steinbeck and in southern Manitoba if we continue to live this way? This is how we tap into that potential of humanity, to live wisely according to the de definition that God has given us. 
And yes, the, the positive impact in our human relationships is easy to see when we live this way, but it also will impact our relationship with God because he will choose to lift up and bestow honor on you as you submit and to surrender to him. He defends you so you don't have to defend yourself. I think that's one of the very real obstacles to humility. This idea that what happens when proud people trample on you? What happens when people speak ill of you? What happens when they tarnish your reputation? When you feel like you're being walked over? When you just want to defend yourself? Well, Proverbs speaks to that as well in chapter 15, verse 25. It says that the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. Okay, wait a minute. Houses? Widows? What does this have to do with anything? Pastor, you've officially jumped the shark on the last and final sermon of this series. Well, here's the deal. The deal is that in our pride, we want to defend ourselves. We want to look after our own. We want to make sure that what we have is cared for. And often, it's not always this completely self-centered ideal of pride that, 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 that makes us act out that way. It can be just defending ourselves when we don't feel like anyone else can. But the promise in Proverbs 15 is that God will defend those who can't defend themselves. In the Old Testament, this is often talked about through the widows and the orphans, those that were marginalized, that didn't have a status in that society. God is saying, you don't have to look out for yourself. When you surrender to me, I will do that for you. You don't have to lash out in pride. I will do that for you. I will bestow honor. I will look after what I have given you. I will care for you, defend your reputation, I, says the Lord, will be the one to lift you up. Remember what Pete Briscoe said. How can Jesus not be number one with his unfailing love for you? Nothing else can fill that place. And when we think of this idea of bowing down in humility and surrender to God and allowing him to lift us up, we know that Jesus himself makes this promise in Matthew 5, 3, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the humble and the lowly, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What bows down will be lifted up. So as the music team comes back up, we're going to sing one more song together. And I just want to remind us of this wordplay. Pride and humility are the ups and downs of life. And pride seeks to lift yourself up at the expense of others and the expense of God's place being first in your life. The result is being brought down low, not just in humility, but in humiliation. On the other hand, what bows down will be lifted up. Humility seeks to treat others as better than yourself by lifting them up instead. And the result is that God and others can now return the favor and lift you up and bestow honor upon you. So our final word to the wise says this. When you give God the throne of your life and spend time focused on, on lifting others up, you will receive honor that pride can never give you. Let's stand to sing and pray one more time. Jesus, I want to just acknowledge and thank you for the great love that you hold for each and every one of us. It is this love that you displayed on the cross that proves the place that you need and deserve in our lives. So God, I pray that we, we're not surrendering out of this obligation or this duty or this pressure, but we're surrendering and submitting to you out of your great love for us. 
knowing full well that when you, we are in the best hands possible. God, I pray that as we rest in second place in our lives, that we would seek to lift the, up the people around us, show them your love, and point them to you so that they too may be second. And in that, we can love you and love others in humility. We pray this in your name. Amen.